Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 72. Hey, listeners, if you enjoy the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, please let others know about us. Tell your coworkers, your friends, your family, loved ones, and share it on social media at Macrofab or follow us on Facebook. At some point during the show, we're going to have a secret code word that we announce. If you email us the code word and your address, we'll send some cool swag your way. The email address is podcast at macrofab.com. So the next hardware electronics engineering meetup here in Houston is going to be happening at the end of this month, June 28th. Mm -hmm. So please RSVP if you are planning to attend. There will be a link in the podcast description and probably a tweet about it. And you know That will be our, our third meetup. Third meetup, yep. And then they've gone pretty pretty well so far. Yeah, they've had good turnout and they've been really fun. Yeah, the uh, talks are really interesting too. Yeah, what's the topic for this month's? Engineering medical devices. That's going to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, do we? How many uh, speakers do we have so far? Oh, we're we're going to have one this time. Cool. That'll be that'll be. Okay, we may have more than one. So, very cool. Yep. And then. Um, on episode 64, we had uh, the Stanford Va uh, Volleyball Project, which is the, um, like, High altitude balloon. Yeah, that's controlled with, with ballast and, and helium uh, helium valve. That was a really interesting talk. Yeah. So they're, they're launching again. Um, you know, I don't have the date for that, though. No, oh, they're launching oh, today. today. Okay. Oh, it's already in the air. Okay. So Very cool. Check that out on, at the Stanford um, Valball Twitter. We'll have the link in yeah. the description. Well, and the last time they launched, they broke like a bunch of world records, right? Yes. It was like the longest flight in well, they, terms of distance and time yeah, and they, for this class or whatever. Yeah, they rebroke their record. Right. Yeah. Well, hopefully here's to them doing it again. Yeah, they are, I think, because last time they almost made it across the Atlantic. So they're probably aiming to get across now. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So what's been up, Parker? So we've been testing these new LEDs for um, Spooky Pinball for doing um, basically serial lights, mm -hmm. or uh, RGB lights too, red, green, blue. Um, and so instead of doing old school matrix light lights where you know you strobe the column and then you activate the row and you can light up a you know eight by eight array, which is like the old school way of doing pinball uh, lights. Um, We've been experimenting with these, uh, the uh, WS28-1 chip to try to um, serialize and limit how much wiring. Because if you ever open up a pinball machine, it's like just wires it's everywhere. gobs of wires. Yeah. And so we're trying to simplify that by just having, you know, one little tiny ribbon cable for all the lights. One that, like, spans all the lights? Yeah. In one continuous Yeah, line? and... And so we've been working on these uh, several, several iterations of boards, trying to get the price down and make it easy to install and make the, and you have to make sure, you know, the reliability is high because right. you don't want one. Because basically if one goes out, everything else down the stream dies. Well, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If the communication can't make it down yeah, the line. Can't, yeah, can't make right. it down the line. Um, and so we finally got it down to where the price for one of these modules in quantity is like the same price as a regular bulb and its sockets. Okay, so it's a it's a one to one. Yeah, it's swap. a yeah, it's a one to one swap. Um, and it's actually easier to wire because what we did is when we designed the panel for these, mm -hmm. is we connected the boards together. 
and then only V scored on one side. So we didn't cut the, the trace between the boards. Yeah, yeah, I got you. And so we can have like eight of them in a row. And so we'll only have to connect the cable on one side. And then we have eight LEDs in a row and then connect the cable again. So, so you're trying to do parallel testing? No, no, no. This is, this is in the game. Oh, in the game. Yeah. I got so, you. oh, so you, okay. So you can just break yeah, them out in a row. Yeah. So, because a lot of times in pinball machines, you'll have like four or five tar uh, lights in a row. Yeah. Yeah. And they have a common spacing. And so we use that spacing in the panel. Wait, they have common spacing across machine to machine? Yeah. I didn't know that. What, what is that? An inch or so? Um, It depends on the manufacturer. Oh, okay. But for Spooky, it's like an inch and nine sixteenths or some weird number like that. <laughs> okay, so it's not a super clean number. No, 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 but it's a number where, like, we can adhere to it in our designs. And oh, so that's really convenient. So you just break off however many you need. Yeah, so, well, you can't really break it off because only one side's V-scored. Mm -hmm. So if you try to break it, you'll pull the trace. Oh, okay. And so we did some experiments with actually lasering the FR4. Yeah. And bam, it, it like, I think it's a 40-watt laser, goes right through it. Just slices it yeah. clean. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'll post some pictures of um, my friend Ben's been doing all the testing for it up mm. in up in uh, Benton, Wisconsin. So I'll post some pictures of the modules working and of it being lasered. It's really cool. Nice. Yeah, he said it's like the brightest, like, fire he's ever seen in his, his well when uh, it hits copper i don't know if it's, he, he says it's all the time huh fr4 is just burning like mad yeah it makes a really white so spooky's flame. gonna have a laser on site that they that's have doing one. all this yep oh that's cool yeah and so the led we, we're using a cree led that's a part number clp 6c dash fkb there's also a lot more numbers after that which denote like the bin because hmm. a lot of times these LEDs go into like TVs and stuff and you want one bin so that they all look the same. Yeah. Um, but we don't care about the bin. We just care about the family of LED. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure pinball uh, players are not going to care too much. Oh, the hue of this LED is slightly off in the green spectrum. Right. As, the, as it's screaming at you and flashing all over the <laughs> yeah, place, yeah. you're not going to notice anything. Yeah, and then the WS2801 chip, which we're using for the PWM and serial communication, mm. that's a really old school, like, LED driver made by Wold Semiconductor. They're everywhere. You can buy them. They're like, I think they're like nine cents or something like that. Wow. And yeah, they're really inexpensive. And, and you can find them pretty easy. Yeah. Um, the whole thing draws 68 milliamps when you turn it on, the LED all the way full on. So, and, but the LED burns 60 of that. And then the chip only burns eight. So are you pumping power through the ribbon cable also? Oh, yeah. So the first LED in line has to take all of the downstream current also? Yeah, it, yeah. It, we're, we're making it so that you can do 64 in series. So the first length of wire has to handle about 4.4 amps. <laughs> and then by the end, it's only 68 milliamps. Right, right. And so are you controlling that in software, making sure you never have too many on? No. Oh, okay. Just let it rip. Well, we have well, the, the conductors we're using can are, handle are, that can handle it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's a hell of a lot of juice flowing through there just for lights. Uh, and that's not even, yeah, not even half of it. <laughs> how many how many lights go into a typical one? Around a hundred. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you have about, you know, old school incandescent was even more. Well, yeah, but but they had dedicated lines. Right? No, they were they were um, they were series. 
they were matrixed. Well, so you're running them at eighth duty cycle. Oh, okay. But these are not. These, these are, are not. these are individualized. Yeah, that's cool. Well, the PWM does well, but yeah. Sure, sure. But full blast. Yeah, full blast. Um, so that's cool. I'll post pictures for that. Um, I'm finally finishing up the EFM eight article series that I like started last October. <laughs> um, I'm I got the. Basically, just we didn't have time since we moved the shop. Basically, last October is when we moved. Yeah, yeah. And so got the uh, most of the preliminary testing, code written, all that stuff. Everything's tested, working. I just got to write it now, which is the easy part. Yeah. Um, so that'll probably come out next, early next week. Nice. And yeah, that will be it for me. Cool. So Stephen. Yeah. Any synth stuff? Uh, a this little bit. Not um, not as much as the previous weeks. Uh, and the reason is, last week we were talking about, you know, getting the filter completed. And uh, I, I talked about the issues with um, one of the chips that I had where I I you had, had the package. right chip, but I had the wrong internal package, yep. the wrong configuration of transistors. So I got the new ones in, and I put them on the board, and it works but doesn't. Uh, works as in I'm checking my DC voltages on it. And that's all running fine. I'm getting values that I would expect to get, but I, I'm not getting any AC out. So something's not biased just right. Um, and, and the thing, I've, I've kind of painted myself into a corner right now because I've been slowly adding functionality, uh, you know, bringing different sections on board. Right now, everything is just a giant rat's nest mm -hmm. on the board. So it's, it's actually really difficult to probe and figure out what's not working. And it's just been such a giant pain in the ass to get it working that I'm actually thinking I'm just going to rip out a piece of um, Vero board, strip board, yeah, yeah. and just build an off-board filter. Build the exact same thing, but off of this, just because I need, I need more room. Uh, I, I, did a, I did the whole filter surface mount, and it's, yeah, it's just a pain in the ass with everything in the way right now. So yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to kind of start from scratch on the on the filter. I shouldn't say scratch. I already have a layout. I just need to slap some parts on the board. So I'm going to do that. And and another driving factor for that was um, the envelopes. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in the final version, I want to have two envelopes in it, uh, such that you can control the, the amp and the filter at differently, separately. Uh, and and the, the envelope that I have on the board right now works. It does exactly what I ask it to. I just don't like it that much. Uh, it's it's just too sensitive and well it's too sensitive in some ways and not sensitive enough in others uh and so there's a much better design that i that i found and i'm going to kind of modify that and put those two put the on Steven another put the steven touch on it yeah that's right yeah so this is this is you know when it, when it comes to this kind of circuitry it's one of those things where you can get it fully functioning and just be like yeah i don't like it it doesn't you sound know? good it well, just so doesn't work it, the it way it i makes want it sound which is whether it sounds good or not is subjective Exactly, exactly, yeah. So because I was going to do the, the, the envelopes on VeraBoard already, I was like, I'll just do the filter also. Because, it, you know, once you, once you set up all your equipment to build all that crap, it, it just goes real quick. So, and I think right now I probably have everything I need sitting on my kitchen counter right now to build everything. <laughs> so it's like, eh, okay, I'll just do it that way. Even the lead solder. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> actually, it's the lead solder you gave me, the, the, <laughs> oh, the, the old uh, Kester stuff. Yeah. You, you're going to come in on Monday just, like, tweaking. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Lead poisoning. 
Um, so we actually had a listener email in uh-huh. and ask a question about the synth. Yeah, yeah. And um, he says, although I'm curious why you specify a voltage to define a frequency, this is your VCO, I guess, Yeah. Um, then using a clock at a desired frequency, basically using a microcontroller mm-hmm. to spit out the frequency. So why'd you do it that way? Okay, yeah, okay. Um, the reasoning behind it was... The original intent with this design was to create something that acts like an, an, a traditional analog synthesizer, yet uses a microcontroller. So uh, the control scheme behind an original analog synthesizer is a, is, is a control voltage scheme where you just put a DC voltage in and modify it based off of what you want it to be. Um, and And so... I wanted to just keep all of that. And and, in effect, what I wanted is that somebody who was going to be playing this wouldn't know that it's a, it has digital stuff in the background uh, controlling it. So what I'm doing is absolutely ridiculous. And, and if I wanted to make it, you know, uh, to be a standalone device that didn't play by those rules, I would never do it this way. I just wanted it uh, effectively to be just like an analog synth, but have the, the kind of frequency stability that I wanted. And, and originally, I had everything running in a microcontroller. Um, but 16 megahertz on an on a, um, uh, Arduino wasn't enough to pump out the, the correct waves. Mm-hmm. I, I, in other words, a, uh, a, a single bit change was way too far of a frequency shift, and it had terrible tuning stability and... You just heard all kinds of extra crap that I didn't want. That's why I ended up going with the DDS chip, the 28-bit yeah. uh, frequency control chip, because then I can just bang on a frequency. Uh, and so, yeah, no, it's really ridiculous. You wouldn't normally design a newer product or a new device to work this way. I just wanted to emulate an old synth. So that's the whole reasoning why. But the answer, to answer your question directly, you are absolutely right. I could do this all in a microcontroller. <laughs> it would be a lot cheaper. It would be a lot easier, smaller, faster, all of those things. But once again, it's subjective, you know? Yeah. You know, I was thinking, what if, because you can do everything in, like, the main loop, and like, on a microcontroller. Yeah. Well, what if you made it more, what if you use a parallax propeller? So you have eight cores, mm-hmm. and you put all your stuff like you put like the you emulated a VCO in one spot, the envelope in another core. Oh, and, and then you just combine them all in another core. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could you could do that. I, you'd probably have to have really efficient code. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Because then you, you could, could do em, that you can basically you to... emulate an analog synth in the digital code. At least how it's set up. Uh, I, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's possible. You'd have to have a ton of um, A to D's reading in all your different pot values, though. No, 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 no. You oh, okay. I see what you're saying. For, yeah, 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 you know, each each module has a handful of controls. You'd have to read all of those you in. You can just get like four I square C ADCs that have eight channels each. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and then have each core like listening, or would you have the main loop listening? You'd to probably that? have one core that's running the ADCs. And then you throw the values into mailboxes, into main RAM. Right. And then, and then, and then each everything just looks at it. That. Yeah. And then when a, and like let's say the VCO, so it gets a, a voltage in, mm-hmm. 
well, it doesn't get a voltage in. It actually just looks at the mailbox value and goes, that's what my voltage is. Right. Then does its stuff and says, here's the frequency, and throws it back out into the main code or main uh, RAM. Well, and, and the thing is, if you think about it, the it's not really creating any kind of difficult uh, waveforms. No. I mean, we're talking about a, 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 a square square wave is just high-low. A sawtooth wave is just X, you know, Y is equal to X. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the more, more difficult one might be, well, a, a triangle wave is just the absolute value. Mm-hmm. And a sine wave might be the most computationally difficult to do. But and you just do a sine wave table. Right, right. In fact, for a lot of, of lower-end synths out there, that's all they do. They just have a RAM lookup table, and it just reads... Uh, when you read in whatever frequency you want to play, that just speeds up or slows down how fast it's accessing the table. That's it. Really boils down to that. And in fact, there's a ton of Arduino synths that that do that currently, uh, but they they just kind of have that. I don't know. I don't want to get all goofy here, but they have that kind of sound, you know, uh, that that really leads to, I don't know, the more digital, whatever that is. I don't know. I don't know how to quantify it. I love that sound, uh, like um, the Shruti by. Mutable instruments. Go take a listen to that. Uh, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. S H R U T I, I think. Uh, but go, yeah, go listen to that. It's a, it's it's an Arduino controlled synth that does wavetable lookups with some fancy filtering on there. It sounds incredible. Uh, but it sounds like that, you know. Mm-hmm. So neat. <laughs> right, so we'll go on to the pal pick of the week. Yep. So we've got two. So we have picks of the week. Okay. Um, so we have the PD Buddy and then the Internet of Fidget Spinners. Oh, nice. Uh, so the PD Buddy Sync is a USB power delivery for everybody. Um, we always like USB Type-C on this show. Yep. So this uh, Clayton Hobbs basically developed a... It's, it's kind of hard to explain. It's, it's not a power supply... We got uh, Steven's got a fidget spinner. Sorry, yeah, no, Iris, uh, Iris, our our uh, marketing manager here. She's got a fidget spinner, and she just gave it to me. Sweet, um, getting prepped for the next pow. Yeah, so <laughs> it's it's not a power supply, but it's a thing you plug into a USB Type C, you know, power delivery power supply. Yeah, and you can say, hey, I want five volts at three amps, and then the power supply gives it to you. So it's like the negotiator. Oh, that's cool. Between whatever your device is and the the USB power delivery power supply. Cool. All yeah. type C? All type C. What's the uh, max? Um, it can do 100 watts. No lie. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I still I s- want a good application for that. Exactly. You know, I, I want to see it. I haven't seen a good application yet for that thing. Because 100 watts is nothing to, you know, shake a leg at. Yeah. That's, a, that's a lot of power. 20 volts at 5 amps. Yeah. You can you can do a lot with a hundred watts. I want to see that. Okay. Once you do the application note. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think like what. Yeah, no. I mean, now I'm thinking like what would I even do with a hundred watts? USB, it's so much power. USB like, Type C soldering iron. It's not a bad idea. Uh, what 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 are the what are the the power of the irons we use? Uh, they're, they're more like three hundred watt, right? No, 60 to 80 watt. No. Yeah. The base is way more than that. No. Huh. Actually, I think uh, the thermaltronics that we use are 50 watters. 
I thought I thought it was higher power such that it could ramp up temperature quickly. No, it, it no, maintains it, a temperature at sixty watts. No, it's fifty. Hmm. The reason why they they heat up so fast is they use that they they're like Metcals. They use Curry Tech, right? Which is actually they vibrate it with a frequency to heat it up, right? right. Instead of just a fat resistor. <laughs> yeah, just just dumping juice into yeah. it. Yeah. So it works at a fundamentally like different. an old like an old Radio Shack banger. Yeah. I, that was that was the first soldering iron I got. Was the little oh, pen type? Uh, it was like fire a thirty dollar one, huh? Fire stick. Is that what people call them? Yep. Oh, Radio Shack fire stick. Yeah, it was garbage, absolute garbage. And tips bent really easily on them. It bent. It 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 did everything wrong. I, you know, it was that was one of those things where I remember getting into electronics. I was trying to. I was teaching myself how to solder because nobody in my family or friends knew how to do it. And I was trying to get it done. And I, I realize now that if I had a better iron, it would have been so much easier and I would have learned a whole lot faster because I, I screwed up a ton of projects just because I couldn't solder with that piece of crap. Hmm. I actually built a lot of stuff with that fire stick. Really? Yeah. I actually got pretty good with it. And the first iron I got after that was a Weller WP-30. Yeah, which is like Weller's fire stick. <laughs> that thing was awesome. I actually still have it. Was it? Yeah, yeah. I should bring you that in. I love that iron. I think I think I've told you this story before. Maybe I haven't. My, the the one of the first projects I was doing, I I set up a table in my parents' living room, and I was uh, I was building it on the table out there, and I didn't have a stand for the soldering iron, so I went outside and I got a brick because uh, it had holes in the side of it. So oh, I, so you can stick it in so there. So I just stuck yeah. it in the brick. I remember uh, I was working on my board, and I set the iron down. And because it had those fairly short cords, it was kind of almost taut against the wall. And the iron spun around, and I didn't know it spun around. And I was looking at the board, and I go to grab it, and I just just grabbed the hot end (laughs) just completely and just burned the living hell out of my hand. I had a huge, like, stripe across my hand of blisters. Yeah. So I actually did. That was the first time I really burned myself. That's actually I did something similar, except mine was... The iron was on a stand on yeah. my bench, and I went to go reach over to get the computer mouse, and I rested my wrist on it. <laughs> yeah. And I did the same thing. I had like a three-inch band <laughs> that was a half inch wide. Oh, yeah. And the blister was like probably three-quarters inch tall. Oh, yeah. It yeah, was huge. Yeah. And and those are those are third-degree burns. Those, those yeah. go right in. Oh, yeah. 700 degrees. Yeah. And I think I, basically the rest of the week... I had my wrist just sitting in a bowl of ice water. <laughs> it hurt so bad. And I did it to my right hand, and I'm right-handed, too. Yeah, that was that was not fun. So. <laughs> Fidget spinners. Yeah. Yay. We'll stop talking about maiming ourselves. We, we, we were talking about fidget spinners earlier because uh, Iris brought this over into the engineering department. And, and we were talking about, like, why? Like what? I don't get it. And the best thing though, he's like, "Why?" And he's sitting there just spinning it. No, I'm spinning like, it, trying like to cat. figure out like why. Like, like <laughs> it, it is, it is absolutely mesmerizing. It really is. <laughs> it's like, but I still don't get it, you know. Uh, but whatever. It's some like here. You, you have a primal thing in your brain. It's like oh, must oh, spin, must spin. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, and we were talking about fidget spinner classic. Which was just twiddling a, a pen in pen, your hand. That's yeah. what we did back in school. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this guy, Matt, he uh, basically made an IoT fidget spinner. Oh, yeah, I saw this. Yeah, it has, a, has Wi-Fi, it has an accelerometer, LEDs. It actually has um, the 
it's POV, but that's not it's not um point of view. It's um uh persistence of vision. So you can put like graphics on it. Oh, and spin it has it. like LEDs. Yes, yeah, so you can make like Pac Man yeah. and stuff. Oh, that's kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah. So go check out that project. I am probably going to fidget spin for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> we'll go on to the RFO while you keep doing that then. <laughs> All right, so we have three RFOs this week. The first one is World's Heaviest Weight. Um, I think the website. Veritasium. Yeah, that's actually the YouTube channel. Right. Um, so the second one is Paratech wins place and most advanced gaming mouse found on Electronics Weekly. That's a cool one. And then the LG Display Quality Assurance Report, which I found in my box for my new monitor. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the world's heaviest weight. Um, this is a really cool video that's basically it, it's like nerd engineering central oh, video of like how do you calibrate ginormous force transducers like like let's say the rocket engine on the saturn 5 the f1 engine it produces like 33 million newtons of force how do you measure that oh how do you know that yeah how do you know that yeah and so they this is basically a ginormous calibrated weight yep that weighs 1 million pounds yes and is it a million i think it's more than that it was uh no it's 1 million pounds well 1 million pounds plus or minus a hundred some odd pounds. Uh, right, yeah, and, I, and the, the tolerance is 0.0005% on a million pounds. Yeah. So it's like plus or minus 40 pounds or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't remember exactly what it is, but yeah. Um, and they basically, they start out with the the kilogram, the, the weight standard kilogram yep. that they have. Um, I think it's like number, I think we use in the United States number 20 or number 22. Yeah. Because they made like 30 of them. Yep. Um, so that's, they use that, and then they basically just keep going up and measuring and calibrating bigger and bigger and bigger weights until you get to the million-pound weight. Yeah, which it's it's made up of individual plates that are fifty thousand pounds each. Yes. So uh, they have it. They have it in a configuration such that you can lift uh, one plate at a time. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you keep pulling up, it'll just add 50,000 pounds every single time. 50,000 pounds plus a little tiny bit. Yeah. And they also go into, like, the fact that this weight is so big, they actually have to um, account for the displacement, the buoyancy displacement of air around it. Yeah, because it displaces about 120 pounds of air. Of air. So they had to calibrate that into... A million pounds. Yeah. And then, like, you know, the local gravity, they had to actually measure that. Yep. And all that crazy stuff. Um, and you actually had an interesting question is, if the moon was overhead, would it affect it? Yeah. Would the, would the pole of the moon have a, a an effect on the weight of yeah, the I, whole million pounds? Because I know it's like, you know, for humans and most stuff that you interact with, it doesn't matter. It's so minuscule. But on something that big, I wonder what the... Right, and all the things it's measuring, all of those things really matter. So do you take that into account when doing the measurement? Or does the moon pull equally on everything such that it zeroes out? I don't know the answer to that. No. It would be an interesting one. Force diagrams. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Physics (laughs) 1. So uh, Veritasium has a bunch of cool videos on there. Uh, They have another one that's great. It's on the world's roundest object. 
Yes. Which is redefining what a kilogram is. Yes. Uh, and and they the, there's hopes. I think it did it happen. I can't remember when it was supposed to go through, but but the hopes are to redefine what a kilogram is by making it into a sphere of known radius of pure silicon. Yeah. And we actually did a, it was one of the podcast episodes we talked about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So go check out both those videos because it's funny. They they made this million pound weight based off of the kilogram and then they're redefining the kilogram, even though it shouldn't change. They're redefining. It shouldn't change. Yeah. It might change though. It should not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the second RFO is Paratech wins place in most advanced gaming mouse. So Paratech makes sensors. Mm-hmm. They didn't make this mouse, but they make the sensors. So the, the claim to fame for the Swift Point Z mouse basically is it can tell how hard you press the buttons on it. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and it uses a basically a little tiny force sensor that Paratech makes. And that, that sensor is the SP210 sensor, which uses um, elastometers dubbed quantum tunneling composites Mm. that the company actually says that that's some marketing wink oh yeah that's some serious (laughs) wink (laughs) quantum tunneling composites that will be our code word oh geez you picked like the (laughs) i guess we we can accept qtcs yeah qtcs qtcs okay (laughs) that's a little bit easier (laughs) um and so i'll have the data sheet for the the sensors it looks like you can actually buy them from the company Mm -hmm. so you have quantum tunneling composites in your mouse i wonder if it makes you headshot better i I mean is that something that games are going to have access to so it sounds a lot like we're on modern consoles now they actually can tell how hard you press buttons oh really yeah um i think the first one that did that was the playstation 2 it it could have it had um velocity well it wasn't velocity it just knew it instead of saying it was a on or off it could measure the resistance because it's a it's a carbon pad pressing into another carbon pad and given the resistance the, the lower the resistance the harder you're pressing it yeah that makes and sense. so if you lightly tap the button like in a football game you would lob the ball or if you hit the button hard you would you know do a hail mary <laughs> no you would you would you'd bullet it oh i got you i got you yeah, I could I could see it for like in a first person shooter using it for a um, uh, melee attack if you want to do like light melee attacks. I was thinking like um, um, context control and stuff like that, or or throwing things, throwing a, like a grenade in a first person shooter. If yeah. you just lightly tap it, you kind of roll it, or if you hit it hard, you chunk it as hard as you can. That's cool. Yeah. Problem is if the problem with doing that is. In video game and and consoles, you have one controller, so you can program that into your game because you know everyone's going to have that controller. Yep. How many people is going to buy a three hundred dollar mouse? It's three hundred bucks. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. Yeah. But okay, so it has an accelerometer and a gyroscope in it. Yep. Why? More force. More measuring. things it can do. Yeah. Cool. I wonder if it would be if the accelerometer and gyroscope would be accurate enough to actually use it as the mouse moving around instead of having an optical sensor. Mm, probably not. I'm guessing no, but maybe. That seems like it would be really hard to measure accurately to that level. Yeah. Especially for small movements. Yeah. And the fact that like 
a lot of times these these mice are used as uh, like super sensitive, you know, mm-hmm. for all that so, Twitch gaming. So, anyways, get the Swift Point Z mouse if you want to spend three hundred dollars. Well, not <laughs> that, and you know, maybe maybe up your game in video games. Maybe you can, uh, you know, headshot better. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a quality assurance report. Yeah, so this is monitor. actually really weird. Um, so I, I just bought a brand new 4K monitor for home. Two of them. Two of them, yeah. And opened the box, and the first thing on top was the LG Display Quality Assurance Report. I've never seen one of these for a consumer device. Which, yeah, you actually have it in your hand right now. Yeah, and it's got the serial number, and I actually checked. It's the serial number that's on the monitor. Huh, go and, figure. And they they're both different. <laughs> so they, and they actually, when you look at the... Um, the, what it was printed on, it's definitely printed from a different printer. Oh, okay. So it's probably, they so, print so up that, a ton of these reports, and then they put the monitor data in later. Oh, yeah, it's clear that the serial number is, is a lot darker than everything else. Yeah, and especially the graphs, too, because it actually has three graphs showing the data of the test report of the monitor. That's and 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 these weren't like super expensive monitors. No, these were like the cheapest 4K monitors you can <laughs> buy. That's neat. But yeah, it's got gamma, color temperature, and delta E94, which I don't know. Oh, it actually has descriptions of what they are. Oh, yeah, please enlighten us. So delta E represents the uniform different difference of two colors over grayscale. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. looks good, right? Yeah, they look pretty good. What's the look good factor? Uh, eight out of ten. Eight out of ten. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. For three hundred bucks, that's not bad. Yeah, that's pretty good. And it actually has test equipment, which CA two ten, whatever that is. If someone knows, email in. What a CA two ten test equipment for monitors are. You should frame that and put it up on the wall behind the monitor. <laughs> behind the monitor. <laughs> Notice the result may change depending on test equipment and system environment. Wait, wait, wait. Is that just like a notice that just says this could all be bullshit? Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> this means absolutely nothing. Yeah. That is great. And uh, I guess that will wrap up this episode. Yep. 72 Two. of the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Sparky Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.